Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. I'm very, very excited because we've got a great show for you today. We've got a nationally and internationally known music composer. Um, she has done, you should see her bio. I should put it up, but it'd take a while to read it. Um, her name is uh, Tina Davidson, and she is with us today. And Tina, how are you today? I am doing really well. It's a little bit on the hot side out here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but. Yeah, yep, it is here too. It's yes. about, uh, well, it's only about 83, 84 here. What's it there? I think it's like closer to 88 maybe yeah and, but, but it's have, very humid so we're just like oh. see we've got uh what's something called puget sound which is oh, right yeah. next to us yeah. so we get uh, uh we don't get very humid here thank mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. none of us none of us have air conditioning or very few of us do oh my goodness um i i am kind of a die hard no air conditioning person and my air conditioning is on right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because you can almost count the dollars leaving your checking account. Oh, my goodness. And also that, you know, if there's a huge use of electricity, there might be a brownout. And I know there are other people who really are very needy for cool, cool air. So exactly. Yes. They need them. They need it worse than than we do. And, uh, you know, I always I don't mind it being hot. I, I've always mm-hmm. I've always kind of enjoyed it. So you know, I'd rather be hot than cold. Yeah. 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 Well, so. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to be perfect all the time. Well, I, the air conditioning was not on for the whole day and it is on now. And probably I'll turn it off when I go to bed. Uh, a little now, relief now. Now it gets cool here at night, so it gets to be in the 60s. Is it uh, get cool no, there? No, it's still sort of sometimes really stinky, moist, hot air. <laughs> That's one way to what put it. What can I say? What can stinky, I say? Stinky hot air. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. So now. We are going to talk about a whole lot of things. We're going to talk about your career. We're going to talk about your book. But first, I want people to get a sense of what you do with children that you've been doing for quite some time. And this is a video that I pulled up from what's well, actually from your website, which is tinadavidson.com. And so you can go there and watch this video. It really is. An, I've never seen anybody do this before. And so it's very interesting, and I wanted to show people. Now, you were on the show a week or so ago, and we played some of your music. And we might play a little bit of that to hear today as well. But I wanted to show this because this is really has an impact on kids and what you're doing with them. Mm-hmm. So, so can we go ahead? So I'm going to go ahead and pull that up and play it. Is that okay? Fabulous. Okay, this is, this is Tina Davidson working with kids and junk. I think I said that right. So hold on just hold on just a second. STEM Makes Music is a summer camp to encourage kids to think about science, technology, engineering, math, even in terms of something artistic. We're not only building our own instruments, we're writing our own music and getting ready to perform. We did a little bit of scientific investigation of the nature of sound. What we're looking at right now is the wavelength. We get the high part and then the trough. Go across it. They're experimenting, they're becoming scientists, so they have to experiment with the materials. They learn to improvise. Learning how to make instruments out of recycled objects. We're learning how we could recycle them and use them to make different kinds of music. I'm trying to make a guitar with different sizes of rubber bands. Oh, it's been awesome. I love building all these instruments. I'm probably going like, to keep playing them after the camp is done. Yay, good job. To be an artist, you have to understand something about everything. You have to understand about the science of sound. You have to understand about creativity. Everybody's been very creative, having a lot of fun, working together a lot. The instruments really sound surprisingly good for inexpensive materials. I think all of the activities that we've done are pretty fun. And I just thought that was really cool how you couldn't connect 
science. Just saying. What have you learned? What did you make? They're amazing. This has been such a wonderful week. They each have created a marimba and a vibraphone and an instrument out of recycled materials. Now we've been writing music for the symphony concert. We split up into four groups and each group made a different song. And then we combined those songs into a large performance. All the group songs are different, but I think that all the songs kind of go together. Ready, set, go. This is cool. So in the beginning, when Kaylee adds it, then you change. Towards the end, we could all do like what Kaylee's doing. We all play our separate parts. That'd be cool. You're waiting for your turn. You're doing your thing. This is really, this is what it's all about. Let's do it six times. It's not what I had in mind, but I'm really loving what I'm hearing. How about like this? We're going to do one, three, two, four. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Let's do it from the top. I'm most excited about the concert. I think it'll be super fun. I've learned so much from this week. It's really exciting to really bring the projects that they've been doing for the week out into a concert hall. I think that there's going to be a lot of people and a lot of us are going to get really nervous, but I think in the end it's all going to be okay and it's going to be really fun. I'm very excited. I think the kids are really going to dazzle everyone. That is the coolest thing, and that is uh, um, that is uh, Tina Davidson, and she's working with the kids. How did you come up with it? By the way, you're a great teacher, and oh, you're thank full, you. of full of enthusiasm, full of life, and the kids really, you could see how engaged they were and how how much fun they were having it was it really was pretty remarkable where did you come up with this um i started in wilmington delaware um i think in 94 uh i think i told you about this project where i was working with homeless women helping them write operas of their lives and then i moved directly into public schools and i created a program called young composers and my idea was that um, that culture builds community and that if you can go into schools and get kids to compose, they'll feel like the genre belongs to them and that they'll be interested, their ears will have been opened. So I did a lot of work in Philadelphia public schools where there was very little resources in the schools. And that's where the um, idea of building instruments uh, out of recycled objects came because they had recycled materials. Now, in really, really poor neighborhoods, they might not have wood because um, a lot of poorer people don't actually own the buildings that they live in. And so they don't repair them. So they, they didn't have wood, but they had uh, cans and bottles and shoe boxes. And, and so we just started with that. And I found very quickly that if I gave the kids permission to create anything they wanted within the limits of the material, 
So I had no, there are no instructions. I basically come into the classroom. We put all the recycled materials in the middle of the room. And I say, so what do you want to build out of this? And they have to sort of figure it out. And it's one of the ways that I teach that I don't, I'd, I'd rather share my enthusiasm and my love of music than to teach them how to do it. They are pretty smart. They can figure it out themselves. So what I would do with the, the, the building of instruments is that they had to do a drawing of how they conceived these objects that they picked. So usually they could pick between three and five objects. And so then I would come around and check the drawing. And sometimes they were doing things that the materials really couldn't do. Like they wanted to take Coke bottles and uh, glue them end to end, but the material just doesn't, you know, it's too heavy, it will break. So we made a lot of decisions on just what the material can do. And guess what? That's life. You know, you have to make decisions on what materials or things around you can do. And you have to use your creativity around those limitations. And then they did a drawing after they created uh, their instrument. And that was to show them what was your creative process? Did you have an idea in the beginning and just follow it through? Did you have an idea in the beginning and then completely it morphed and turned into something else. And then I'd always say to them, so which one is better? And they would like think, oh no, we've got to choose. And I said, neither of them. <laughs> it's about how you create. It's not really that there's anything that's better. It's knowing yourself. And then we went on to, to uh, create pieces with graphic and invented notation. In this particular uh, camp, I had them every day for a week, I think um, for maybe four or five hours. Oh, wow. So we really could create instruments. We used, we made uh, the wooden marimbas out of just, you know, little pieces of wood and they could saw it. And, um, and then we made the pipes out of, I think it was electrical conduit, you know, to house uh, electrical uh, wires. I, you know, I just go to Lowe's and I just bang on things until it gives me the right sound. <laughs> and as you cut the piece of wood or the piece of pipe, that determines your pitch. So it would be low is bigger and then up to smaller is higher because it's, a, a, it's got less room to vibrate in, and so the pitch goes up. And I was working with this wonderful science guy, and so, you know, we, we always were having these conversations between art and science, which was really, really, really fun. And then we created pieces for the whole ensemble, and then the kids broke up in groups of four, and then they created pieces for four of them. And then we put those all together. We had, like, one overriding theme. And my idea is that if every orchestra concert could feature a piece played by children, the audiences would really grow. You know, a featured kids performing in a, in a, a youth orchestra or an ensemble or, but people really connect when they see their, their young people of their community performing before the concert, the regular concert. So this is what we did is we had a performance before the symphony played. Um, and, you know, the idea is to always create these connections with community so they feel really involved in the process of making music. So you did it all. It was about community. It was about creating science and blending science with music and the kids. You could see it in their faces. They, they were just having the time of their lives, having, having a great time doing it. Well, I think also if you um, are in a situation where you don't have to uh, teach a curriculum, you don't have to teach, uh, you don't have to grade the student, you don't have to evaluate them, um, you can let them really come into the process and learn about the, what you're doing by themselves. 
And then you just sort of add little nuggets of information. It's sort of like, you know, throwing spitballs at them. They go, oh, well, thank you. I could use that. <laughs> so I think that possibility of allowing the kids to have real ownership of what they're learning. Um, it was a camp. It was, you know, quite, we taught a lot about acoustics and about science and about music and about, we actually taught about form, how you create a piece, how is there's a beginning, middle and end. There was so much we taught, but um, it was more by doing than by reading a book about. Well, and that is how, I was talking to somebody yesterday about how the brain works. And the brain only the brain only changes and works when you're doing something. Yes. You can't read it in a book right. and you can't conceptualize it that way. You have to. It's like riding a bike. You right. can't learn how to ride a bike by learning about it in a book. So you've got to physically do it. And I think also, you know, I think why I'm such a hit in public schools is that, that it's so rare that we that you have a class that is just everybody is doing something and it's cacophony and you know you know it's kind of uh this chaos um and kids don't have that opportunity to run around the room and look for things like usually i add a lot of beads and buttons and uh pipe cleaners and all sorts of things that they can think about how you can make sounds and so they're always experimenting and I talk about being an artist is that you are part scientist, you are experimenting, you're, you are always enhancing your understanding of things. Um, and so I think just uh, being allowed to run around the room and, and make noise is really different in a classroom in public school. It's, it's way different. They don't, yes. they generally don't allow that. Yes. Right. And, but it's really cool that you that you did that. How long have you been doing that now? So I've been doing that, um, well, since about 94. So how many years is that? Uh, 30? Darn near 30. Yeah, yeah. Darn near and 30 years. now I have graduated to teaching uh, teachers how to do this. Because when I go into the classroom, it's, it's a little bit of a Band-Aid. Um, what I really want is the music teachers to teach this kind of method. So I have, I haven't done it for years, but there was this institute down in um, a teacher's institute in New Jersey. And I used to teach there in the summer and then public school teachers would come there to learn different methods. Um, so I, I have some converts out, out in the school systems. <laughs> and, and I think that what you're doing um, that you've been doing for 30 years, it's the teachers would love that because it teaches theory. It teaches how to put it together. Um, and even I saw one of the gals was putting together a, she took what looked to me to be a Quaker oats, uh, tin. And then she put rubber bands that have di of different widths around it, which would then produce different sounds because of the tightness of, Right. That. Am I right. correct? Yes. So it's not only the width of the material, uh, but it's also how tight you make it. The tighter you make it, the higher the pitch. Um, so she could really actually tune her oatmeal can. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was very proud of it. Uh, at, yes. the, at, the, at the end of it, that's that's a big thing. Is that they've created something, they did it, they can play it, then that gives them a sense of innate pride in something. Well, it's ownership. Yeah, they. It's not about me at all. It's really about them owning, not their creativity and their flexibility and ability to do this kind of thing, and. Um, that's really exciting when I'm teaching a kind of a, a basic tenant of life, uh, which is creativity, flexibility, ownership. Um, that's really exciting. And the other thing that I didn't see in that, in that classroom with those folks, I imagine that at times there can be, but, but there wasn't any bullying. There wasn't any, I'm better than you are at this. It was, everybody has a, their own set of skills. Yes that they were applying in their own way. Right. 
Right. And I tend to group the kids or, or have the teacher group the kids so that perhaps a, a not a, a shy student would, would be with a student, a student who was a little less shy so that there would be, um, you know, sometimes kids need uh, to be partnered with people who can help them out, help them feel more um able to do stuff by helping them. So that was that was something that we did a lot of. Now, I always taught, of course, not at this camp, but in public schools, my, the teacher of this classroom is an integral part. And I always co-teach it with her or him. So I always have uh, lesson plans that I share with them. I have a little book. And I always say, you know, if there's a teachable moment, like there's something that I'm teaching that suddenly reminds you of something you're teaching, take over the classroom. Don't, don't feel like that, that, that you have to wait because I, again, I want this to be a collaborative project so that they feel that they're learning something from the, me. They're, they're helping me manage the kids, which is really important. Um, and that I am also collaborating with them. Now, do you, uh, what age group are these kids? They, they look like they're about, I don't know, fourth, fifth, sixth graders. Or? They were a little, little, though they were older. They oh. were, I, they were middle school kids. Um, I do, I tend not to do first and second grade, although I can. Um, usually I start with fourth or fifth, sixth grade. Um, I have done high schools. I've done uh, sort of uh, the, the, the artistic schools. So in Philadelphia, they have a school called GAMP, which is Girard Academic Music Program, and that's a high school. And they also have another uh, arts high school. And so I've taught there. That can be a little bit of a harder sell because they're so inured into classical music that they don't want to lower themselves. <laughs> to, to... <laughs> but the kids at GAMP who were um, not quite as into this concept of themselves as great performers already, they loved it. And after they had to do invented notation, they couldn't believe how cool and how efficient classical notation is. I wouldn't let them write anything in classical notation at first. They had to create their own language. It's, it's really an alphabet. And so when I finally let them go back to classical music, they go, oh, this is really ingenious. This really works. So that well, was nice. Yeah. That is something. That is. Yeah. Con con congratulations. And Thank you. That, that is, but that, ladies and gentlemen, that's only the, the tip top of your career because mm -hmm. you've done, you've done extraordinary things. You're a composer. You do a lot of, cl mostly classical music. Yes. Uh, I but you you're also a rocker deep at heart. <laughs> I discovered that in our last interview and, and stuff. But tell me about the uh, Blue Curve of the Earth. Oh, so I was commissioned by this amazing violinist, Hilary Hahn. She is, you know, was a child prodigy. She's got uh, just an amazing career. And she commissioned, I think, 30 encore pieces. There might have been more, uh, 27, 27 encore pieces. So we were given a three to four minute uh, piece of time. Yep, there it is. And um, we had to create a piece that was, and encore pieces tend to be a little bit more flashy. They're usually a little bit more virtuosic. And to be able to write for someone who is at the top of the profession and basically can play anything was such can I I'm sorry go ahead uh, it was such uh, an exciting project to be involved in so I uh, wrote her this piece called the bleak blue curve of the earth and uh, it's sort of um, I think really about my relationship to the earth you know that picture of the Earth from uh, a space capsule where it's just this beautiful blue orb 
and because of the sea. And I think there's somewhere there's a slight bit of sun coming uh, from the backside of it. Um, so she performed this piece and recorded it on Deutsche Grammophone. And then she toured with it. I think uh, she picked maybe four or five pieces out of that uh, selection of pieces and toured with them. And then she re-recorded it. So that was very exciting to get um, two recordings out of it, two different recordings. And you know what I like about modern technology is that you can be in Pennsylvania, I can be in Seattle, and we can play something and show people something of a piece of your work. Uh, the technology that we can do nowadays is just, just amazing. Can we go ahead and play a little bit of... Uh, Blue Curve of the Earth? Yes, let me just preface it. If you play it from the beginning, it's very hard to hear. She's actually not using her bow and she's just using her fingers and you get this little tiny little slaps of fingers and then she'll actually be plucking the strings with her uh, fingering and then she'll start using the bow in a different way. And it takes a little bit of time before she actually, it's sort of like, Oh, like the genesis of sound. You know, you just hear tiny little tapping and then finally it becomes real sound. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, you, the last video you could hear pretty clearly, yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to turn the volume up a bit and we'll see if we can capture the essence of what okay. you're talking about okay. and, what, and what she was tr trying to achieve with this piece. Um, so... Um, if, if, if it's a little soft, ladies and gentlemen, stay with it. It, it will, it's, it's just all part of the design of the piece. Am I correct in that? Yes, you are. Very nice. Very nice. Well, this is again, blue curve of the earth. Tina Davidson is a composer and, and, uh, and Hillary Hahn, who is world renowned, by the way. Um, is is the uh, violinist who who does this? So so let's okay. Cross your fingers. Let's hope.
and that is Tina Davidson's composition that was put together by Hillary Hahn. And it was pretty amazing. You know, whenever I have the opportunity of talking to somebody like you, who's a composer and can do that, I'm just astounded that that, that how do where did that come from? Did you have any idea? Well, you know, it is kind of my profession. <laughs> no, 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 please understand. <laughs> please understand. I'm not trying to to belittle it in any way. No, no, I'm, no, no, no. Uh, I, I mean, so, and I'm all about demystifying. Um, you know, I think when you've created a language uh not not, no i haven't created the language but i've created my own personal language in this and i'm always interested in pursuing different things um coming out of nowhere the way the piece does is something that i've done a lot of and i think that might be about the way i sort of uh feel about life like the beginning of the day or the beginning of one's life you sort of come out of nowhere you just sort of you sort of these little bits of atoms that are coming together so i have used that i don't always you know always do that but i um i'm also really fascinated by rhythm and the piece is pretty rhythmic and um how you sort of travel through that rhythm and come to different sections you know there there are all these little sections and this is a very short piece. So it had to be sort of beautifully sewn together. So you um, might feel that the piece is actually longer. You might sense that it's longer than it really is because it has so many little um, uh, sections to it that sort of arrive and then depart. Um, I don't know, for me in this piece, just to write her something that was rhythmic. Um, I love writing for strings and piano because I always feel that they're, I try to make them almost one voice. And in the beginning, you couldn't even tell that the piano was actually helping her out. He's actually playing muted piano. So you put your hand in the piano and you stop the string and you get more of a little thump instead of like a real pitch of a piano. So um, I, those are things that I've just always loved to do and I'm always sort of expanding that kind of language for myself. It is a language unto yourself because you get it, mm-hmm. you understand it. And have you ever tried to teach the language that you understand and are using to somebody else and does it compute for them? Well, it's interesting that in my memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, I've had several reviews from more like music critics. And one of the things that they talk about is that they would like to know more about how I compose. And I'm thinking, that's really weird because a lot of people say, oh, I'm so grateful that you talk so much about how you compose in there. But what I don't do is talk about like how I use harmony or how I create melodies or how do I get some of my, what, what you call rhythmic modulation. So um, I'm just really fascinated by what would they want to have more of. And, you know, I teach composition to college students and, um, a lot of times, you know, they're coming out of theory classes where they've had to name everything in the music. They like this, this chord moves to that chord, moves to this chord, moves to that chord. And then I'll play them some of my music and they'll say, well, what chords did you use? And I'll say, well, I actually don't know. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested um, in how the chords that I've picked, how they move, and I'm not interested in relating it to classical music. I don't use that kind of language. So um, I think I teach by, I try to teach always by, um, what is the word? Uh, It's not criticism, it's uh, critical thinking. 
critical thinking. So that's where the student him, himself or herself has to ask questions about their composition. You know, what worked? What didn't work? What do they think could improve it? Um, and it's always important to always ask the first question is what worked? You know, not to always go to the criticism. And sometimes one is not exactly sure. There's not like an easy fix, like, oh, I know, two teaspoons of vanilla and you'll be okay. You know, a dash of salt. It, and you know, tr true great cooking is not really about measuring. It's an art form. It is, it's, it's about that sort of experience that you've had over a long period and a deep, deep understanding of spices and how things work and what to put in first. You know, do you beat the eggs? Do you not beat the eggs? Do you separate the eggs? This becomes a sort of a, a huge computer bank of information that the cook has. And they can stop and think about it and say, oh, yes, this is what I did, especially if they have to translate it into um, a recipe. But it's possible that recipe may not be ever quite as good as that cook makes it. I have an example of that, if I could give mm -hmm. it to you. I would love to. I was the general manager of, a, of, of one of a restaurant chain in Seattle. It was called Garcia's of Scottsdale. They're based out of Scottsdale, and, and it's a Mexican restaurant. And what, the, what they did, because they were a national chain, is they had spice packets. Mm -hmm. And so they would send each of the restaurants spice packets for their refried beans, for their uh, chicken casado, for their beef dishes, for all of that. So theoretically, anyway, each cook at each restaurant, because <laughs> it was a different guy doing each one, the food would come out identically. It is supposed to come out identically because that's why they have the spice packets. It's like right. McDonald's. You get a Big Mac in Seattle or a Big Mac in Pennsylvania, and it tastes the same. But it was always different because it depended upon the skills of the cook that was doing it and the order which what he did. And they were all slightly different. Yeah. And we never could. <laughs> he used to drive the regional manager crazy because <laughs> he wanted identical stuff and he couldn't get it done because yeah. it was all different. It's kind of like music. Your interpretation is unique to you and it's not going to be, nobody else can say, I think today I'm going to write something that, Tina Davidson would write. <laughs> they can try, but it's not going to be the same as what you would write. Right. And probably if I wrote something tomorrow, it wouldn't be the same that I wrote today <laughs> <laughs> as well, because yeah. we're all growing and learning and understanding things from a slightly different lens, depending upon our experiences. Um, and so, yeah. Now, I got a question for you, because that, that piece that we just played, it was like you were telling a story. Mm -hmm. um, were you in, were you thinking of the story as in like words and this and and that translated into music and you were telling the musical story based upon the story you had in your head that was what it was about? Or did that even come into play at all? Am I making it too complicated? Uh, it, you know. Uh, actually, the piece started the title. I always take a title and sort of hold it in my head while I'm composing. Um, so the the title was A Thin Blue Line. Well, I didn't realize that that's also the name of a police, a, quite a famous police movie. Yes. It <laughs> and is. so when I realized that, I said, oh, I, I better change the title. Um, but I was thinking of tracing a blue line and just sort of following it. And, um, but no, there wasn't really a story in my mind, like uh, there are people walking and they get to the edge of the earth and then they slip down. No, there was no story. Um, but you do get a sense of a story. And I created one in my head as that song was being played. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, because, you know, it was like, it was, soft and it was small and then it got big and then it was so it's almost like the 
caricature of somebody's life. Mm-hmm. They, they start out small and quiet and and they're learning and then they get big and then it gets big and that's their their long years and then it slows down and fades to uh it gets softer near the end of one's life and then it goes away so it was almost like a um Mm -hmm. a moment in time for me of 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 the the life experience that we have i don't know if that makes any sense or not you know and to me that's the best part of composing it's not that you understand what I was going through, but you understand what your feelings or your sense of the piece was. And that's, that to me is really just so wonderful. It's almost as if you take ownership of the piece at that point, you certainly take ownership of the way you heard it. I think sometimes with classical music, there is this striving for, you know, figuring out the genius or, getting it right or the perfect performance. And I'm really not interested in that. And a lot of times, um, um, I a lot of times it, in a rehearsal, just before performance, I'll say to the performers, I said, okay, enough with the notes, forget the notes. Now it's your time to just play the music. If you make mistakes, who cares? You know, it doesn't really matter. Just play how you're feeling, you know, just let, let it go. And um, I think that's always a relief to the performers and certainly to myself. I, I can imagine that for the performers, it is like a, a, a key to freedom yes. because they can, they can interpret it their own way a little bit more freely right. than if it's, if it is demanded that you be exactly exact and precise on each note played this way and you know no mistakes no mistakes i say oh a note here or here or there doesn't really matter (laughs) who's counting you know it's interesting i I, i'll take that in in the world of rock and roll there are some songs hart's got one where um one of the gals plays a a piece before the song begins Mm -hmm. and it's and she does it in concert she does it live She's a wonderful guitar player, but she does it differently every time. Oh, nice. She does what's, what it feels to her in that nice. particular moment at that time. Nice, nice. And then it goes into the song. So mm-hmm. so you can listen to the same song at three different concerts and get three different songs. It's really That's cool. wonderful. That's wonderful, yes. Yes, indeed. By the way, we're talking with uh, Tina Davidson, and she's got a book out. Yes, she does. She's got a book out. We need to talk about the book. Uh, okay. Let's... Let, <laughs> Let your heart be broken. Life and music from a classical p- composer. Now, I have to ask you, what does it mean? Let your heart be broken. Uh, well, I it really comes from um, a time when I in the eighties when I was going to a conference, <clears throat> and um, this was a conference led by Stephen Levine, who was uh, somebody who worked in the the health field in in psychology counseling it was during the aids epidemic and in the 80s and 90s uh you know it was sort of our precursor to covid Uh, it was very scary um it was you know these young people were dying really horrible deaths you know just it was awful and they could be relatives i had a cousin who died um, it could be anybody. And in the arts community, particularly, it was hit quite hard. And uh, the, before you continue, I just want to make this asterisk note for people, because 1980 was 43 years ago. And there may be people who don't remember or were around. And it, it hasn't gotten in the last, I don't know, 30 years. It hasn't gotten the publicity that it did. But at one time... There was this disease that came out of nowhere. Nobody knew where it came from. Nobody understood how it, how it affected people. But what it did is it killed their immune system, and then they would die. I had a, a good friend of mine that, that passed away from it. And, and in those days, they said, oh, he died of pneumonia. Right. Well, yes, he did. But that was because his immune system had been ravaged by this disease that nobody knew what it was. Uh, it's called, I think it's uh, in Africa, it's called the wasting disease. So you lose a huge amount of weight. 
Uh, you usually have terrible uh, cancer episodes. It's it's just was so devastating. And we knew it was a bloodborne disease, um, but they didn't have at that point uh, the ability to test blood. So people who were getting, you know, life-giving transfusions were terrified as well. And they didn't know for a long time how it was transmitted. Exactly. So, so if you want to find out more about AIDS, I highly encourage you to do that. Yes. Because it is a major part of American and world history. And there are still places in the world today that we haven't stamped it out yet. Um, well, and people now can live with AIDS. Uh, yes. Long lives. They have medication now to, to hold this, uh, I guess, virus in remission. Uh, which is just amazing because young people were just toppling over. I mean, it was just... So this was a conference and there, there were a lot of caregivers there, people who took care of um, their loved ones. And so Stephen Levine was addressing them and he said, um, he says, oh, I'm always asked what is the meaning of life? And he says, I think the meaning of life is let your heart be broken. And that concept to me that we all have broken hearts but to meet that brokenness, to be with that brokenness, not to hide it or put it aside or try to bury it, um, to walk through that kind of heartbrokenness, for me personally, allowed me to really recreate my life again. So it was that act of figuring out what my heartbreak was and addressing it either through therapy or however you want to, with friends or whatever it is. Um, but meeting it head on, I just found my personal experience was that, you know, if you could sort of imagine the heart breaking and there are these two halves, that when I imagined that I looked into the heart, this broken heart, there was this beautiful, rich soil uh, for a new life to begin. Um, and that was a great teaching for me. I had been suffering actually from 10 years of having a heart ailment. And I had recently had sort of groundbreaking surgery at that point and um, had been really scared of blood transfusions. It really had been uh, something that we talked about a lot, you know, what would happen, how would... Um, and I found myself... Um, kind of like Lazarus walking out of out of the uh, grave. I had never expected that I would be cured. And I had been reading Stephen Levine's books, and he had said that uh, illness is a great teacher, but like all great teachers, you have to let them go. So I was at a place where I was really trying to figure out what my next steps would be. Um, and had gone to that conference. Isn't it amazing? Now, I never would have I never would have thought this 30 years ago. But when you have had more life experience in on the planet and you have more experiences, both good and bad, you kind of reconcile with that all of that. And so that at the end of it, even though like you said, your heart is broken. It was also renewed by the same thing. And, and we, when you get a little older and you've had more of these things happen to you, you recognize that that's absolutely the way it works. That's just yes. life. Yes. Um, and um, there, there have been so many opportunities for me where, um, and I think opportunities for all of us. I mm -hmm. mean, just just think uh, of our children growing up and leaving the nest. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big heartbreak. Um, I think we talked about that before. Yeah, um, might keep coming back. Yeah, <laughs> asking for the checkbook. Yeah, and they'll come back, and yes, and you have to figure out the the next way of relating to them. But you know, heartbreak is not a particularly you know it doesn't hit just one person. I think it hits us all. So my book is about um, talking about my heartbreak um, and how I was sort of 
processing a lot of that heartbreak and writing music about it as well. Uh, sort of experiencing the heartbreak through my music and the healing from it as well. So um, the book is, is written so that there is a chapter which is like a, a story about my young life or my you know, middle years or my college. And then in between each of those chapters is a chapter of my uh, music journals when I'm in my 30s and uh, early 40s. And I'm writing music. I'm a single parent. And I am also uh, processing a lot of the information that I'm telling you in the story that's just before it. So you get this sort of uh, different viewpoints of what's going on in my life, as well as my adult life. And these chapters get closer and closer together uh, towards the end of the book. Sounds like a fascinating read. Um, and, and by the way, again, we're talking with Tina Davidson and, and she's a world famous composer. I just like saying that, but it's true. <laughs> you're a world famous composer and you're, you're a extraordinary, extraordinarily wonderful guest. Oh, thank you. I'm just loving the, these opportunities to be with you and talk with you. You are just sensational. Ooh. And it's, it's really is, uh, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, so get the, go to her website, which is tinadavidson.com. Uh, let your heart be broken. The life and music of a classical composer. And, um, you can get that at Amazon. As a matter of fact, if you go to her website, which is tinadavidson.com, you can order the book directly from her website. It says memoir. And so click on memoir and uh, go down and, and you can order from Amazon right there. <laughs> and it's, it's, it was released in March of uh, 23. Yes. So it just came out. How have, have they bothered to tell you how it's doing yet? Uh, I know that my publisher is very, very excited. Uh, she's been just that, uh, very that's, supportive, that's good news. very supportive and very excited. So, um, it's been a it's been a wonderful journey with this uh, publishing company. It's a young publishing company out of Ohio, and um, they have been so supportive of this work and of me. I'm just I'm just like thrilled to bits. And the name of the publishing company, just in case anybody wants to know, is Boyd and Dalton. Yes, Boyle and Dalton. Yes. Is, mm -hmm. is it, oh, it is Boyle. I said Boyd. Mm -hmm. Boyle, Boyle and Dalton. And Dalton. Yes. Yes. And very, very, and so um, they've taken the project on. And I, I have to tell you, I've, I've talked to a lot of uh, people about the books they've written and stuff. If when you get somebody to actually say the publisher is excited about it, that's <laughs> not every day. That's it's really it's just been lovely. And I worked with an amazing publicist. Uh, it was a music publicist. We decided to publicize it through the music world and not through the literary world. And of course, it it's being it it was uh, received by the literate literature world as well. But I think this backdoor of the music world has been very successful, and uh, that's also been an amazing relationship. Well, and I gotta I gotta say, you know, you've had a wonderful life, and you got a lot of life left to go. And um, I I hope that you continue to work with kids and. And continue yes. to uh, write write music, and because you have you have an impact, you have a positive impact on the planet. No, and I I firmly believe, and I know this to be true, that uh, music is a vibration that comes from mm -hmm. above, mm -hmm. and and beautiful music is something that gets us closer to who we really are. Yeah. Oh, but well, thank you, thank you. Yeah. And it's, and it's important what you do. So yes, and it's, and it's important for you to keep doing it so that you can come back on my show. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I totally. What I want to I'm going to read you because you said something about love. Um. At the last chapter, I say my life has been a rich journey out of darkness, mar marked by absence. I was in the end found by love. And that part ends, 
We are in the end a, me a measure of the love we leave behind. While this is no original thought, the experience is always new. Bravo. Hold on. <laughs> that is that, that is an absolutely wonderful sentiment. And, you know, I'm convinced that if each one of us were to live every day of our lives and say, who can I be nice to today? Mm. Our world would be a completely different place. It would be. Would be. And that's, that's what I'm working for. I know that's what you're working for with your music, working with kids, uh, and, and doing what you're doing. It's just, um, there should, there needs to be more people like you on the planet. I, it, but, you know, it, Thank you. All, all the music would be different. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for doing this again. Uh, her name is Tina Davidson. I go to her website, which is tinadavidson.com and get the book. Let your heart be broken. The life and music from a classical composer, and you, there's tons of YouTube videos that you can that you can watch, and you can get a real sense for the individual and the person that she is, because she mm -hmm. is really quite dynamic. And I want to thank you for being here. Now, before we go, I want to, even though you just said it and it was just beautiful, I, I want to give you a moment to tell our audience anything that you would like them to know. Um, first of all. Um, my music is on uh, Spotify and all your Apple music, wherever you stream music, you just can um, uh, look it up. Um, let's see. I'm going to leave you with two little thoughts. Um, when you are blocked at work, whatever your work is, you're just like having a real mind block. Take a nap. <laughs> It's true. The brain has this uh, amazing way of, of helping you sort through problems, uh, maybe get some of the anxiety out of the way, the clutter out of the way, so you can go ahead and solve this problem. And sometimes the problem is solved when you wake up. You never know. And uh, the last one <laughs> that I'll share with you is share your joy. Communicate your love of the work with others Share rather than teach, motivate rather than lecture, include rather than talk to. Teaching implies a hierarchy. Sharing is between equals. I love that. That, that is amazing. Because at the end of the day, we're all equal. Yes. Yep. Tina Davidson, thank you so much for being here. If you'll wait right there, I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... Be kind to one another because each other's all we got.